Hi everyone, welcome to Such a Good Feeling where I get to talk to incredible creatives about the small moments in their lives that changed everything. My name is Steve Anderson. Today I'm talking to legendary arranger, producer, author, presenter and all-round style icon Richard Niles. How are style you? icon, I like that one. Wow. I, well, well, you're always very well presented. Um, and, and I have literally just, I'm talking to you, but I've just been listening to you via the medium of your incredible podcast, uh, where radio, radio Richard, where it's a brilliant combination of some of your archive, uh, stuff and some new, some new interviews you're doing. Um, I guess you just, did you just dig all that stuff out in lockdown? How did, how did that come about? Well, the first thing is I have always, when I do, when I did interviews for 20 years, uh, on the BBC, I always had the idea of having a video documentary of some kind of them because I realized from the first interview, wow, I'm talking to an incredibly talented, brilliant person who has influenced the whole world with his music. And, and wow, how great it is to be talking to him. I mean, my interview with Barry Manilow, he's just sitting there as a you know as a guy a fellow musician and i think that helps a lot you know it's not always necessary but it helps if you understand the language and the uh context in which they talk in which the so barry manilow i mean he's talking about stuff that he has never talked about before and after the interview he said you know, it's so great to get the chance to talk about this because no one has ever asked me about my arranging or my presentation and my songs or how I think about the dynamics of everything. He says it's it's been such a pleasure to be able to, to talk about those things because actually the stuff that they want to talk about usually is that much, a tiny fraction of what I do. Whereas... They don't want to hear about the work, the preparation, the concept, and that's all I want to talk about, you know. And that's that's why whenever I talk to you, when I interviewed you, I wanted to know the nuts and bolts. What did you do next? How did you start doing that? Okay, then then what did you do? When did you order coffee? You know, I want to know everything, because that's that's the interesting thing to me, not not the glamour and the other side of it, which is quite frankly, really boring when you when you get down to it. It's all about the work. I mean, a great example is I've, I've heard you talk about Kylie. Now, people see her as, you know, a sort of a fluffy, cute, diva kind of character. And that's not it at all. I know, and you really know how hard she works. Yeah. You know, yeah. how much preparation goes into all that. That that's what the what the public should know about. But instead, they want to talk about hairstyles and you know all that kind of stuff, and it it really doesn't interest me. I agree, and I think that thing, you know, there's room for all that stuff, and that's fine. But you know, I I go out to search for, you know, the podcast we were just saying. I was we lost the wonderful Al Schmidt recently, and I was searching for things with interviews with him. I found a great Andrew Shep's one. Um, Manilo, you know, for me, if someone's talking to Manilo, like you, if you talk to Manilo, you know, you're not going to ask so much about Copacabana. You're going to ask about when October goes and how that happened. You know, it's that stuff that um, exactly. that interests me. And uh, and yeah, that that's what this is. This is really about. It's a, it's also about those kind of moments in your life 
where just this kind of little bit of magic happens and it might be a small thing or it might be, you know, I mean, if, if we go back to the very beginning, I mean, for instance, what, as a young little Richard, what is the first instrument you pick up? Considering mm. your house is full of music with your, you know, your dad is a acclaimed arranger and guitarist. I mean, is it just literally the first thing you pick up as a guitar? Well, I'll tell you, my story is kind of weird uh, in that my my dad was a fantastic musician, singer, singer, guitar player, songwriter. And I grew up with the greatest jazz musicians in my house all the time. And, and of course, listening to him sing the standards of guys that he had worked with, like Cole Porter, Harry Warren. I mean, I got to sit. I mean, one of the most amazing experiences that I, I've ever had is that I went over to my Uncle Nick's house, and my Uncle Nick was a big influence on me, a piano player. And uh, he used to play like Bill Evans away in terms of the voicings, you know, those very lush uh, voicings with lots of seconds in them. He used to play like that in the 30s. And people just thought, you know, what is this? And so I went over to dinner at my uncle's place with my dad, and the guest was Harry Warren. And so, you know, here's the guy who wrote There Will Never Be Another You. And he's this charming Italian old guy. And he sits down at the piano and starts playing there will never be another you and i'm playing with him and i'm about at the bridge and i'm realizing i'm playing this tune with harry warren i mean those experiences and you know and i got to talk to him about it and and uh you know he said things to me like melody was everything and he liked to you know he just it was fun for him and he he came up at a time time when it was possible to just be creative and and uh make entertaining music for people and it was all everything was cool so you know the, those things when I, okay so now i'll tell you the 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 weird thing about me my dad was a musician and my mother and father divorced when i was eight as a result my mother remarried and uh she didn't want me to have anything to do with music uh, and, you know, kind of seriously discouraged me from it. I mean, it wasn't like I was forbidden from it, but it was like not cool. So I had, when I was uh, 15 years old, uh, now I'm imagine I'm a kid in the 60s growing up and I'm sneaking out to go to clubs to see The Who 10 years after Jimi Hendrix, the Grand Bond Organization, uh, Cream, the early version of Cream when they were just playing as a trio of tryouts in clubs. I'm sneaking out to all these places seeing, because I loved the music. And of course I loved the music of the 20s, 30s and 40s that I'd been brought up with, with my dad, hearing it orally, but he never taught me guitar. So now, I wanted to play piano. That's the only instrument I was interested in playing. I, I, I had a vague interest in guitar, but not really. I mean, guitar was the 60s, and that was coming down 
the street saying guitar is the thing. But actually, my, what I wanted to learn was the piano. But get this, you can't sneak a piano into the house. So what I could do is <clears throat> I bought a guitar from a friend of mine, a cheap little Spanish guitar, and uh, I put a, I, I created a, a Bob Dylan decal and stuck it on the guitar to make it mine. And then, and then I started teaching myself from, from, from records. And I had a, one of those little box things that you put a record in, and I forget what you call them, dance set or something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I had that, and I'd put the records on, and I and I'd learn the stuff from the records. So that's really how I came at the guitar. It was, and it was all in secret. And then uh, when I was eighteen. I met a guy, a, a violinist called Jerry Field, and we formed a band, and he just happened to have been playing with a, a French group called Gong, and also he played with Yes. He did some gigs with Yes, and so he knew so he knew a few people in the business, vaguely. And we went into Island Records, uh, Island Publishing, Island Music Publishing, and we got a deal that day. I, I mean, just ridiculous. You know, here I am, 18. And uh, he liked the songs. He liked the band. He signed the band to, to Island Records, uh, Blue Mountain Records. Anyway, that was the story. That's how it all started. And then I did that for two years. Um, and, of course, I was writing songs. I was, play I was playing the guitar. Then I realized I don't know anything. So then I decided I wanted to go to Berkeley because I was a huge fan of Gary Burton. I mean, I, I loved jazz. And mainly I loved Gary Burton because he was the guy who was doing that fusion of jazz and rock. You know, he was doing rock rhythms with playing, you know, great jazz. So that was it. I said, that's the place. He teaches at Berkeley. I want to go there. And this was 1971. And luckily, they, they let me in. So that's how, it all, that's how it all started, really. And had you, by the time you went to Berkeley... Had you started to get involved in arranging for other instruments, or was it? Well, I had been arranging. My, the band that I had mm. had saxophone, doubling flutes, mm -hmm. violin. Well, that gave me a front line, you see. Okay. And then, and then I had a singer, sometimes two singers, girl and a guy. That gave me some things, and I realized that I I had written all the songs. And I was telling everybody what to play. No, you play this here, but up, but but you know whatever. And and I was arranging in the same way that uh, Jerry Wexler calls it collective arranging. But mm -hmm. in this case, I was just telling them verbally what to do because I couldn't write it down. When I went to Berkeley, I could barely read music. I mean, I knew where the notes were. Mm. And and I went in there, and they said to me, well. I'll tell you what, you've got six months, and, and when, if you get through the first semester, uh, and you've got to have, you have to have a B minus average. And if you get a B minus average, then we'll let you stay. If you don't, you're out. Luckily, without bragging, I had an A average, so that was kind of cool. So they let me stay. But, it, and, but I also have to give great credit to the Berkeley method of teaching, which was so great. Uh, and so you'd have to be an idiot not to learn there. You really would have to be 
you know, run over by a tractor not to learn anything there because they make it so straightforward. Unless you're a lazy uh, guy who just wants to take drugs all day, which I wasn't. Wow. And that's four, so that's four years there. So I did and, four, yeah, 71 to 75. And, and when they spit you out at the end of it, I guess there's, you're fully equipped for anything, right? Luckily, and, and I didn't even know I was fully equipped, although... I had been lucky enough, I mean, I, I was lucky enough to study with Herb Pomeroy, who was the, the premier teacher of Duke Ellington writing techniques, and also taught this great course called Line Writing. You will notice, because you know my writing probably better than anybody, that I don't always write voicing, 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 voicing. Mm. What I write is a voicing, and then... I make a melodic line of the next instrument to the next voicing. Mm -hmm. So that's called line writing. So you're making, because a lot of times when people write harmony, 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 you're going to get parts that kind of do this. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't really make sense. So with my style of writing, I'll, I might write a very close voicing like this. I'm giving you a visual representation. Yeah, yeah, the hand is And up. then the next voicing might be like this, because the, the, the lines are going in opposite directions. Yeah. And then they come down. or the, And so there's independence. So each of the parts is interesting to play for the players. That's why they enjoy it, because they've got, they're not just playing some mechanical thing. They're playing melodic lines that go this way rather than up, you know, that kind of thing. And because of that, it makes the music more fluid. And uh, so that that's really... I mean, I, I was so lucky to to study with him, but I also studied with Gary Burton. I mean, mm. my God, I you can't imagine how happy I was. Mm. And and then when uh, Gary Burton brought Pat Metheny to the school in 1974, January of 1974, I think it was, uh, I was chosen as one of the six guitar players who got chosen to study with. I, th I couldn't believe it. I said, you know, Gary, are you sure about this? I'm not really a great guitar player, but I'm just not, that's not what I do. I'm a writer. He said, that's why I want you to study with Pat, mm. because I think Pat will be interested in your writing. By, th by that time, Gary knew that I was slightly uh, to the left of center when it came to writing. So he said, you know, he's going to like your tunes and you're, you're going to like his tunes. Because nobody knew anything about Pat Metheny at that time. He had had no records out. He had had nothing. Hmm. But but he met Gary at a at a concert, and Gary heard him play and said, "Right, that's it. You got to come to Berkeley, and let's you got to join my band." So I was there at a really amazing time, and I, you know, Pat was doing gigs in Boston at the time, and uh, he had Jaco Pastorius coming to town, who nobody knew, and you know they heard him play, and it was like. <laughs> and I was lucky because I, I got to walk up to Jocko was sitting alone in the club just having you know a coke or something whatever he was having and he was sitting there alone I thought I've got to talk to this guy so I walked up and I said hey man you know it sounds great he says yeah thank you and I said what well, can you just tell me this doesn't sound like anybody else of course, I was interviewing him then. See, I was a natural-born interviewer. So I said, tell me how you came up with this. How did the idea come up to, to do what you're doing? He said, well, I'll tell you. He said, I was on the road with this soul band called the CC Riders. And he said, I, 
you know, it was this whole gig, and I, I liked the music, but it was kind of boring, and I also liked bebop. So I'd go to the gig, and then I'd go home to my hotel, and I'd practice bebop licks all night and, and be playing all that stuff. And he said, wait a minute, if you think about an undercurrent of, you know, instead of, you know, bebop is, you know, so, but what, what if you have a halftime funk beat under it? And over that, you can like, suddenly it's, so he said, I thought, this is good. And he said, then I thought, if I play the bebop stuff at double tempo, because by that time he had ridiculous chops, I'm not using the chops. So then when he got with the band, instead of playing the straight lines that he had with the band, suddenly he was playing, you know, and, and it, he said, I came up with this thing. And he said, that's how it happened. So it was really interesting uh, to be there at that time. Then when I came to London, of course, I'd had all this great, uh, teaching from people like Mike Gibbs also was a huge influence, uh, completely out of his mind, crazy genius. So then I came to London. All I wanted to do was write songs. It was the only thing I was interested in. So I went to all these companies, 25 companies. I made a list. I wasn't going to stay in London at all. My, my mother said, oh, well, come on. It would be nice to have you here. Just see, just see if you can get any work. So I went to 25 companies, production companies, uh, publishing companies, record companies, all kinds of, and played my little demos from Berkeley. They all told me to piss off, <laughs> except for one guy. It was a publisher at Essex Music called David Barnes, who was a very nice man and a jazz fan. And he knew all the young jazz guys at the time. So he knew, he knew Lawrence Juber, who was a young kid who was just coming up in the studios. So he introduced me to Lawrence, and that was a big thing, because uh, I'd never seen anybody who could play like him, because uh, he could play anything. And so I could write anything, and he'd go, oh, hmm, well, I, I, that's interesting, and he'd play it. And I'd say, wow, everybody else tells me to run, go away. You just play it. And then, you know, I met all these other great musicians, and I st started, then I, the publishing company, I'd written a musical, and the musical was about female pirates. And uh, now, now the thing of it, it was that it was based on a true event, in, a sort of true event in history. Um, at first, this publisher just said, well, you know, it's nice what you're doing. And I said, well, by the way, I have an idea for a musical. And he said, well, you know, if you ever do anything with it, come back. It's a cute idea. Four weeks later, I came back with a completed book for the musical and 14 songs. And he said, well, that's impressive. I'll sign you. And he signed me. So now I, I, I was able to do all my demos at Essex Music in the studio there with a great engineer who I, and I knew nothing about the studio, but boy, did I learn. You know, I was asking the engineer thousands of questions. In fact, I remember the guy's name. It was David Hamilton Smith. Uh, who became a very successful and respected arranger. Uh, not arranger, uh, sorry, engineer. Uh, so I asked questions of every, you know, it was great, great learning experience. Nothing happened with the musical, but then I got asked to do 
arrangements by other people at Essex Music. Oh, can you arrange for strings? The guy said, and I said, yeah, well, I can, yes. So, well, there's this disco track. I've got this Lebanese guy who wants to do a disco track. And I thought, well, generally, I hate disco music. I really don't want to do it. And he said, well, he'll pay you 400 pounds cash. Baby, 1976, 400 pounds cash? I'll tell you, that's a lot of money. So I said, hell yes. And I came in and I did it. And, you know, I was really scared when I first went into the studio to do it. But boy, when I brought my hands down, it sounded fantastic. I had no idea really what it would sound like. I just knew that I had studied it and I knew it worked. But And I didn't know about strings, disco. I just knew, I just wrote stuff that sounded like fun. There was some disco music I liked and I that's what I ripped off. So, <laughs> you know, that was the thing to do. So then they said, wow, this is fantastic. And I suddenly got tons of more work at, thrown at me from that producer and other producers. Then I got a call within a couple of months from EMI Music. And they said, we've heard about you and we'd like to know if you'd be interested in being our house uh, arranger. And I didn't know what that meant, but I said, sure. Because, you know, the big, the big secret of being successful in the music business is never say no. Always say yes to everything, uh, as long as there's money in it. So, you know, I went in there. Now I had a big studio, which was at, at uh, EMI Music, and I was given all of their writers. And she's, I said to her, uh, you know, some of this stuff is not very good. Is it okay if I kind of add stuff and change stuff that she said do whatever you like you can't have any writing credit but go ahead and do it and that, of course that wasn't very nice but nevertheless i did it so i rewrote lyrics i rewrote i i said just cut out that b section it's crap you know it's not helping the song and it's stupid to have a two-minute intro on this song and you know normal sensible things so great experience and then one of those gigs i I could hire horn sections and string sections. It was amazing. So I hired a horn section, and there was a guy called uh, Derek Wadsworth, who was a trombone player and a very successful arranger. And, and he came up to me after the session, and he said, man, you know, that was a really nice chart. Um, I'm doing this huge project for Cat Stevens, and I can't do it all. It's a double album. Would you be interested in taking half of it, and I'll take half of it? I said, hell yes. I loved Cat Stevens, you know. And so that was a great learning experience, too. And Cat uh, Stevens was a really unusual and interesting guy. But, boy, I learned a lot about production from him. Um, one thing that I'm sure you'll you'll uh, like is that he uh, he had to produce all kinds of different singers for this album and they were everyone you know just really crazy different singers and he tr I noticed that he treated each one of them differently mm. some of them he was very pious and religious and you know and and some of them he told fart jokes yep you know so and 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 I said to him, "What is this?" He said, "You know, you have to give the artist what they need to create. Yes. If they need fart jokes, give them fart jokes. If they need, if they need spirituality, if they need technical help, you know, whatever it is, they're all going to need different stuff. So just you know, give them what they need. That's your job. 
great and advice. And I thought, you know, it reminds me of Steve Anderson. Well, you know? I mean, that that that's I stole that advice from Phil Ramone um, after reading one of his books and hearing it, and he's the same thing, and Foster says the same thing. It's like for that two, three hours, it's all about them. And whatever they need, you make sure they yeah. get it because that mo for you it's three hours for them it's the that's going to be they're going to hear that the rest of their lives. Correct, correct, very true. Yeah. So it is. I love the fact that that the, the thing about disco is, you know, you were you weren't a fan of disco. I'm, I imagine I'm guessing when you said that some disco you were inspired by. I'm, I'm guessing probably Chic would be in that. Oh, I absolutely adored Chic. I you know native New Yorker. But Chic, effectively, you know, whenever Niall talks about Chic, Chic is just, uh, they're just jazz records with a beat. <laughs> exactly. Well, they, yeah, I mean, I, if you've heard my interview with him. Uh, yes, I uh, have, yes. And, you know, that was just such a great pleasure to be able to do that. Unfortunately, he wouldn't let me video it, but right. uh, but I have the audio. And uh, uh, that's very true. I mean, yeah, Native New Yorker, Odyssey, that was a great record. Yeah. Um with a with a solo by Michael Brecker, by the way, and yeah. I was heavily into the Brecker brothers. I mean, yeah. as you know, uh, and so, you know, later on in life, when I actually got the chance to work to, uh, first of all, to interview Randy Brecker and Michael Brecker, that was a great pleasure. But then, in recent years, when I got to uh, have Randy Brecker sing one of my songs and play trumpet on my Banzilla album, uh, that was. Probably I put that way, way, way up at the top of any uh, musical professional experiences because I, I admire Randy Brecker so much not as a composer, as a creator, as a musician, and and as a songwriter. His songs are hysterical. You know, mm -hmm. I used to write, and I still do write funny, uh, comedy kind of uh, oriented songs, and. Of course, he did too. You know, a, a lot of the songs that that he wrote for groups like Dreams and also for uh, you know, uh, sneaking up behind you. That's funny, you know. So and and then his later albums. So I asked him to sing on the album. He said that's ridiculous. He said, you know, I just sing on my own albums for funny. I said, no, I I love it. You're this is the perfect song for you. I wrote it with you in mind. He said, great, I'll do it. What I mean, you know. There, those are the big pleasures of life, and and uh, he could not have been a nicer, kinder, uh, more generous, and charming guy. I mean, he just and and hipper than the hippest thing you can possibly think of. Mm. That's Randy Brecker. Wow. So there it is. Amazing. And was it your penchant for disco that got you involved with Starship Trooper, which? I know at the time was potentially fun, but actually has gone down as one of the best disco records of all time. Well, <clears throat> this is an interesting story. And luckily, I'm actually being interviewed by you, so I can tell it. <laughs> um, I was working for Hansa Records. Uh, for oh, producer. amazing, yeah. Yeah, Hansa. Boney M. Boney M, yeah, yeah. Boney M and, and Eruption, which I did oh. I produced some records for them. Love and uh, all those records. And uh, I did stuff for Frank Farian, which that's a whole other story. Okay. That's a very funny story. Uh, but I was there and I was mainly working for a producer called Steve Rowland, who was an American, who is an American producer, 
who actually lives here in Palm Springs. But he was working for them as their head of A&R and, and producer. And he had found the, the a song, which he really liked, written by um, these two guys who were very talented guys. And it was called I Lost My Heart to a Starship Trooper. So now he said, we're going in the studio in two weeks and we, we need to find somebody. And I said, wait a minute, I know somebody. Because about a month previous to this, I had auditioned Pan's People. I was asked to come in by the people who, who managed Pan's People. And, and they had one girl with them who could really sing. Who was I mean, she wasn't a soulful singer at all, but she could sing, and it was Sarah Brightman. And so I said, oh, yeah, this is the girl you should use. And, you know, and of course, she was a dancer as well. So four or five weeks later, maybe six weeks later, I'm, I'm, I said, I know this girl. Maybe we can get her. Now, by this time, Sarah had left Pan's People and had joined Arlene Phillips' Hot Gossip. So we contacted her. She said, I'd love to do it. And Arlene Phillips, though, had her under contract. So Arlene Phillips said, yeah, you can only do it if you do the record as, you know, because we wanted to say Sarah Brightman. But they said, no, you have to say Sarah Brightman and Arlene Phillips, hot, hot gossip. And Steve Rowland said, sod that for a game of soldiers, but in an American way. Mm-hmm. And and he said, that's too that's too much of a mouthful. We'll, we'll call it Sarah Brightman and hot gossip, and that's it. And otherwise, you don't get the deal. Mm-hmm. So we did the record, and it was a it was a fantastic hit. Now, you know, as I say, that record was planned very heavily, and then Steve said, "Okay, now here's the storyboard. Here's what I want to do. Here are the sound effects because there are a lot of sound effects in the record. Mm. I want all of that in there." And so uh, he had uh, he hired two really great keyboard guys. One was Pete Solly. Um, who had been in some big band, and and also Craig Pruis, a very uh, talented um, writer, and and he was one of the first guys to get into synths, you know. And Pete Van Hook, of course, mm-hmm. uh, played drums, but he also had was one of the first guys to get into Lind drums and all that kind of stuff. So we had all the sound effect thing going on in a big way, but we had a real string section and a real brass section. And uh, it was it was quite a production, and uh, so yeah, that's how that all came about, and and it was a big hit. It, it's it's huge. And just before we leave disco, I think um, I have to talk to you about how how on earth did the disco sound of music come about? Because I'm so glad you asked. That, because that, that's a rarity. If anyone hasn't heard it, it's worth checking out. The guy, one of the guys who wrote uh, Starship Trooper was called Jeff Calvert. Mm -hmm. And his father had a recording studio and was a very famous trumpet player in the studios. Excuse me. And so he called me up and he said, I've got this idea. I want to do a disco version of The Sound of Music. And I said, yeah cool and and uh he said uh well i've got the finance to do it um and 
I want to, but the problem is I need to have somebody who sounds like Julie Andrews because it's not going to be funny if we don't have that. And I said, wow, you know, you are talking to the right guy because I know this girl who is unbelievable. Her name is Sharon Campbell. And Sharon Campbell, for a party piece, at par- literally at parties, or if she was in the studio because she was a great backing vocalist, she would do, you know, a little, you know, whatever. She would, she would do a, an uncanny Julie Andrews voice. So I said, let me see if I can get her. So we got her and she was paid a fee to do it, <clears throat> which is another story, but we won't go into that quite yet. So we did the record. Now, of course, it was all down to me to decide how to do it. And he said, all he, all he said to me was, well, just choose a bunch of tunes from The Sound of Music and we'll do it as a medley. And uh, that's it. So... I then wrote the thing, and it took me a while, as you can imagine. It's quite a long piece. Hmm. Not sure how long it is, but it's yeah. getting on there for six minutes, eight minutes, mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Anyway, and but luckily I had real strings, real brass, um, and a great rhythm section, and everything that I needed to do it. And we did it at, I wish I could remember that studio in North London where we did it. But, you know, this is senility coming in. Mm-hmm. But anyway... That was it. And so the whole idea was to make, it wasn't going to work without Sharon Campbell. And boy, she nailed it right on the head. Anybody who hears this thing. So she nailed it so well. And by the way, I just have to add here, because I'm going to tell the rest. The girl singing, I am 16 going on. That's Sarah Brightman. Because ah. I said, oh, what are we going to do about it? That has to be a different voice. Hmm. So we got her in. And it was the wonderful, great singer Nick Curtis singing it with her. Hmm. And unfortunately, he passed away. But he was just a beautiful guy and and uh, always a pleasure to work with in the studio. Anyway, moving on. So Sharon Campbell's performance was so incredible that we then got a call from Julie Andrews people and they said that we we are putting us we're going to stop this record i don't know how you got julie andrew's voice from the from the original master tracks but we're stopping it we're, we're suing you and you can't you, you've got to you've got to take this record you know out now and we said no 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 and we proved to them that it wasn't julie andrew singing it was sharon campbell so then they had to shut up meanwhile Terry Wogan picked it up, and he loved it. So he was playing it on his station, and of course that made it successful. And it became a huge disco record at the time. And um, so there we are. That's 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 pretty much the whole story. And that's why I asked because it's a it's a fantastic it's a it's a fantastic one. And and again, you're you've always been one of those people, but. As much as you say, oh, you know, you like to say yes, and then the money and stuff. It's, it, there's not really anything that anyone can ask you that, that that would be too crazy. I think you know, can you do the disco sound of music? Yes, I can. There's yes. not kind of what do you mean? It's like yes, I can absolutely. You know, and I know how you work already. Your brain has started to go. Oh yeah, okay, I can do that. I I've already, that. I've already started f- putting the form on paper. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're going to do this, and then we're yeah. That was that. That of course is the thing. And when the Pet Shop Boys asked me to do 
the overture. It was exactly the same format because yeah. they said, we want you to do an eight and a half minute overture for our performance tour. And we've got 20 dancers from the Royal Ballet. And I said, hell yes. Yeah. And, and they said, I said, which tunes do you want me to pick? Any hits, any of the hits, you do it. You do whatever you like. Mm. And I said, okay. And I said, what, you know, what kind of, what are you giving me? Whatever you want. Yeah. So I had a huge orchestra and I did it live, mm -hmm. which was, you know, that was, I didn't do the disco sound of music live because the studio wasn't big enough. But, but I uh, certainly did uh, the Pet Shop Boys Overture live. And the, but the brief on that was slightly different. The brief on that was, we just want it to be, to sound like a big film overture. Yeah. And I said, well, when you say film, does that include like French film and, and uh, Ealing's comedies and all, anything, as long as it kind of relates to film? I said, okay, oh boy, that was a red rag to a bull right there. <laughs> Very and then I thought about one of the tunes, and I said, "Tell me, uh, would the thing, would the film thing, also maybe include Sinatra?" And he said, "Sure, yeah, yeah, sure, that could work." I said, "Oh boy!" So, so, so then I had it, and and you know, I have to really. I mean, at the end of that, the guys came to the studio right at the end when I was finishing uh, recording it. And they heard it, and they they were both sitting there with big, huge smiles on their face. And they said, wow, this is fantastic. Now can you play it to us and tell us where our tunes are? Oh. <laughs> and I said, well, they're, they're there. Don't worry. And, so, and, the, and you know, it, it was all recorded and mixed by Steve Price. When you can't beat that. No. Uh, another sadly passed away guy. But, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And, uh, yeah. I want to get into a little bit about pop because oh, good. you're you kind of one of the few people that got to do the sort of the pop, the boy band trio. You, you did Westlife Boyzone and Take That, which is, oh, uh, yes. I, I also, well, actually, for instance, of one of those things, I think, you know, I don't want to go too much into what you and I have done together because we've talked about that all the time. But I, I do think we should mention for Take That, um, there's a particular song that that you worked on for me called Sunday to Saturday by Take That. Indeed. And, um, and I just want to talk a little bit about, you know, I have a, I ha you and I have a, a, a love for musicians, um, for brilliant musicians. And uh, I just want to talk a bit about Nigel Hitchcock for a minute. When, yes, when was well, the, when was the first did... time that you encountered Mr. Hitchcock? Well, this is quite interesting because the very first time I, I had heard about him. The very first time that I actually got a chance to use him was on that Pet Shop Boys Overture. Right. I heard him play somewhere, and I thought, this guy's incredible. That's it. He's going to play lead alto for me. So with the Pet Shop Boys Overture, I had an entire orchestra, but I also had a big band inside it. Mm. So I had a full, typical big band four trumpets, four trombones, five saxes. And I had Nigel play the lead alto. And uh, man, I mean, you know, I just heard him and his sound was enormous and his phrasing was beautiful and that was it. So that was the first time I ever heard him. So then I, I used him um, 
a lot after that. And when it came to sessions, one thing that most jazz players can't do, that Nigel can do, is take an eight-bar solo. Hmm. Now, for pop, this is great. You know, it's like it's like the native New Yorker thing, Mike Brecker. He's a great jazz player, but he also knew how to take a commercial solo for that record, which and, is the cool thing. Yeah, and keep it melodic. And keep it melodic. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I prefer melodic players anyway. And if you listen... Okay, so when it came to the Take That record... I just said, okay, well, it's going to go out on the end. I don't really know what's happening. Let's have him play. So so he played. Now, I didn't realize that, number one, I mean, I, I, of course, I knew that you would just say, go ahead, keep playing. But I had no idea that they'd keep it on the record. No, man. I just had, uh, yeah, or you, yeah. It's a boy but, band record. <laughs> but, you, but you didn't mix that? No, we, we we just mixed it and we sent it off as that version. And then we just assumed they were going to come back and ask us to fade it. And they did. I mean, Amazing. and it's there on a number. I mean, you know, it's 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 a. I mean, it's a testament in a way to to the band and the A and R and everybody at the time. And I think it was just so good. And uh, but actually, what was hilarious about it is that literally Nigel kept playing until until stuff was dropping out. On you know, in the old days, you used to record stuff to tape, and you just record it round and round, and eventually you'd just stop. So yeah. things were dropping off of the tape as he was playing and he, he just managed to finish it in exactly the right place. But, um, yes, but, but I think it's an, one of the other things I was going to say about that is there's a, I always find there an interesting look on players faces when they are in one of your sessions, uh, people that know you come to expect it, but possibly some of them that don't, there is a, it, I wouldn't, I would, I don't know how I'd describe it as a horror, but, uh, but just generally, okay, this is, this is not going to be something we can just phone in. And I mean, yes, you do like a. You, I know you love giving people stuff that's lovely to play, but you mm. also like giving people something that's a challenge, and you get quite excited when they rise to that challenge. Yes, and they do. And you know, uh, many many years ago, when I was working with Gavin Wright, uh, who was a tremendously great he string was. leader, as you well know, yeah. Gavin said to me, "Well, you know." Your sessions are the only sessions that the string players tell me. If I book them for, they, if I say it's for Richard Niles, they said, right, that's, that's the evening taken care of. I've got to practice all evening. Yeah. Because they know that they're going to get something that's challenging in terms of reading and in terms of uh, the kind of patterns that they need to play. And in fact, Gavin was so great because he... You know, he said, look, man, this guy writes a lot of blues licks. He writes a lot of jazz licks. He writes a lot of rock licks. You guys have got to listen to that music. You've got to, you know, be able to play that stuff. So, you know, so they always said that they had to practice the night before one of my sessions. And I, you know, I, I, I don't like torturing them. I just like to hear great music. But I was brought up, my dad used to play duet with Joe Venuti. Now, Joe Venuti was the greatest jazz violinist who ever lived. He was the father of it. He was the first, and he was had a prodigious technique. So in I grew up with Joe Venuti and my dad playing guitar and violin duets in my living room. So that sound was kind of in my ears. So I when I started writing for strings, I didn't know. I thought that's the way string players played. Little did I know that it was, you know, a little bit virtuosic. 
So, you know, and, and uh, you know, this all sounds very self-serving, but I, but I love the sound of it. That's the whole thing. And as you well know, when you and I hear those strings doing those things, we think, yeah, that's, you know, <laughs> that's what we want to hear. Talking of the best of the best, um, what was your introduction to, to Trevor Horn as, a, as working with? My introduction to Trevor Horn, I believe the first thing I did with him was the Pet Shop Boys Left to My Own Devices. I mean, hang on. <laughs> That's quite a way to make a statement, is it not? <laughs> well, you know, to, to be, I, I, I can, I can say this because you yeah. won't, but, you know, mm -hmm. one of the, the best, most legendary, uh, incredible openings of any pop song ever. And that's the first thing you do with him. Yeah. And that was just big chords at the time. Those yep. lines weren't there. It was just, ah, ah, ah no, oh. da -da 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 -da. That, that, that was all my stuff. Yeah. You know, and all the cute little, yeah, that's what I mean. That's, but that's it. So he sent you that and said, did he give you any direction or just do your thing? Here's the direction. I went into the studio, he played me the track and I said, what do you want? And he said, go for it. I said, okay. <laughs> That's three very dangerous words to say to Richard Niles, go for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And, the, and then on, on Slave to the Rhythm, I said, what do you want? He said, impress me. Ugh. Those, those, those were kind of words, you know. But, but uh, for, for uh, Left to My Own Devices, I said to him, what do you want, you know, in terms of instruments? He says, well, I definitely want strings can have some brass, woodwinds, whatever you want. <clears throat> and I said, well, string section, um, how, how big do you want it? And he said, well, whatever you think. And I said, well, usually for a pop thing, the way I write, because I write a lot of notes, mm -hmm. I usually use 22, you know, so it's not huge. It's just a, about 20 strings. And, and he said, well... He said, the problem is, I'm thinking of double that. And I said, well, why? He said, well, doesn't 40 strings sound better than 20 strings? And I said, well, no, not necessarily. Not if they're not playing together. And when they're playing fast lines, I like to have a slightly smaller section. And he said, no, 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 I don't mean that. He said, doesn't it sound better if I tell people there are 40 strings on this record than if I tell people there are 20 strings on this record. Mm. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> well, that's Trevor. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, that, that was how that came. That was the first time I worked with them. And then... Uh, and that, by the way, you know, is, is a disco record again. Oh, yeah. But, you know, the, the hip thing about... I mean, you're not going to meet a hipper guy than Neil Tennant. No, I, mean, I agree. He, he, He's a he's a pretty top man. Yeah. And and he's an intellectual. Mm. So he knows what he's doing very yeah. well. Yeah, but and, it was, it's very classy. But the way they mixed that, you know, the, actually at the time it was the Chicago house thing and that but but as right. a as a as an opening it's it's I mean it, it's beyond dramatic. I mean, you do dramatic yeah. really well, but I mean, that had a whole black and white a Hitchcock, everything was in exactly. It. Well, you know, one of my one of my uh, things that I always say is that people, if you want a duck, 
it's no good writing a duck. You just can't. I mean, nobody will get it if it's just a duck. If you want them to hear it's a duck, they'll say, oh, what's some kind of waterfowl or, you know, what? But you have to write a duck which is 40 feet high uh, with, with a uh, mortarboard on his head and a, a, a suit and tie um, and spats. Then they'll know, oh, it's a duck. So exaggeration is, you know, we've said this together many times over the years. Exaggeration is over the top is where we start. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's, but the reason is not just because we want to go, hey, yeah, that's over the top. No, it's because people, the public won't get it unless it's over the top and they won't see it as over the top. They'll see it as the thing. You want it to be disco, uber disco. You want it to sound, and I wanted that intro to sound dramatic and like, I think that the, the, the only thing that that uh, Trevor did say to me is, is or no, Neil said to me is, we're thinking of this kind of like a Russian film. That explains that. What yeah. else did I need? Yeah. You know, again, red rag to a bull. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing that's interesting is, and you know this as as a producer very well, the stuff that I write, at least 50% of what I wrote for Slave to the Rhythm is not on the record. That's true. At least, I would say, maybe 25% of what I wrote for Left to My Own Devices is not on the record. Because in the producer's wisdom, they, they left it out and they thought it was too much or whatever, or not, not suitable for the record. That's fine. I understand that they do that. There have only been a couple of places where I thought it was a kind of a drag. Um, Slave to the Rhythm, I'm sorry that some parts aren't in there because, you know, it's interesting. When I, I've heard some remixes that are the orchestral remixes, and I love to hear it because I can hear some of the things yeah. that were left out of the original mix. Yeah. Um, of course, the Pet Shop Boys... Uh, version of Somewhere is one of my favorite arrangements that I've done. Mm. And they did a version, they did a mix of it because they liked what I'd written. They did a mix of it without <clears throat> without drums. It's just yeah, a, orchestral a, version, without, yeah. a completely orchestral version of mm-hmm. it. And, and you can hear stuff there. Yeah. So, you know, and with Slave to the Rhythm, because because a lot of the stuff was left out, I then did my own version of it with Banzilla, mm. where I threw in all the stuff that I had <laughs> left out before, that they had left out. So, you know, it's it's a thing. But look, my, 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 uh, my goal, my aim, is to make it the most amazing sonic experience possible. I want to catch people and draw them into the thing. That's what we all want to do. We want to tell a story. You know, it's a cliche to say we're all storytellers. Every actor says, but it's true. What the hell? Why does somebody listen to a piece of music? They want to hear something outside themselves. They want to be taken to a faraway land with puppies and and, uh, pixies, you know. So we can do that. You know, other people can't, so we can do that. And that's what I enjoy doing. And not only does it take them away to the puppies and pixies, it takes us away, you and me. Yeah. I, see, I see that face that you get when you're in the studio, that that, that dumb yeah. grin. And it's because we're happy. We're, but that we're... must have been, I mean, even though you said that about Slave to the Rhythm, 
I would imagine that 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 the point that happened for Trevor is by the time you get to the end and the big band section comes in because nobody expects that. Nobody expects that, <laughs> and and I wish it were louder on the record. But you know, and on the remix where they took out the the drums, you can mm. hear it. Yeah, but but, uh, but it's that's quite when quiet. when he says impress me. I mean, it's impressive all the way through, and you've got those beautiful chords to play with anyway. Obviously, yeah. But yeah. when you get to the end, the payoff is it's almost it's just a big band double time jazz riffs over yeah. and over. Yeah, yeah, it was great. You know, yeah. but but um, yeah, I mean, it it was always amusing and interesting. I do believe that Trevor is is a somebody who will go down in the history of record making as being one of the greatest record producers of all time for the reason of his his uh, sonic experimentation and his his uh, desire to do anything and also as you well know this is a man who has a team. Yeah. You know, first of all, he's a musician himself. Second of all, he had a great team. I mean, look at who was working on Slave to the Rhythm. I mean, he had, first of all, Steve Lipson, who's mm -hmm. no idiot, Then and really capable of doing a lot of stuff. Then he had me, Andy Richards on keyboards, which was, you know, not he's no slouch. Um, and J.J. Bell, that rhythm guitar is the star of the record for me. Mm -hmm. uh, Lovely JJ, who is now also not with us, but man, that 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 guy was the greatest rhythm guitar who ever lived. Yeah, because he wasn't just funky; he was creative, and he did stuff that you just the sounds that he he was mm -hmm. just a great guy. Anyway, so that for me is the star of the record and uh, makes everything happen. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, there's the other version of Slave to the Rhythm that I did the. I, they had different names for it. Yeah, the the blood, Blooded or one of those ones. One of those things. But, yeah. You know, it's got this, I mean, I heard this, it had this great bass line. Oh, yeah, kind of the, ori the original version, actually, yeah. Like a punk version. Yeah, it was kind of, yeah, it was, it was, it was. And then, so what I thought when I heard it, it had almost nothing on it, but just this driving drum, the bass line, and some chords in it. And I thought, Rome. So everything that I wrote was based on Roman music or what we think Roman music is, because believe it or not, apparently there is very little, almost no example of what music was like in Rome. They had it, they had brass instruments, but nobody knows what they did with it. So, so I went for this whole thing of using fourths and fifths. So slave to the rhythm, yeah. I mean, you know, that's all quartal voicings. Um, and for the public, that means instead of voicing the chord in this and then a third higher and a third higher and a third higher, it's all this and then a fourth higher and then a fourth higher and then a fourth higher. And that gives you a different sound because there's wider spaces between the intervals and all the harmonics that are generated by that are, are um, you know, I'm a kind of a nerd when it comes to all that stuff. No, so I think yeah. the harmonic series is important. And yeah. that's why when arranging is also a thing of seeing where the sonic spaces and the harmonics of that instrument, so you're not getting in the way of everything else. Yeah. That's the thing you've got to avoid. 
Like some people say, well, why don't you want to? Don't you want to use a double bass? No, there's already a bass on the track. It's gonna get in the way. Forget it. Don't need it. Let's get in the space where the thing, you know. And if it's a low singer, I know I can write some beautiful high stuff. And if mm -hmm. it's a high singer, I can write some beautiful voicings underneath because I'm not getting in the way of, you know. I mean, your first rule, as you well know, you know, you're working for the turn. You want yeah. to always make them sound great. In your career, who's the, can you think of one person that's kind of made you kind of uh, swoon a bit or go a bit starstruck? Well, because you're a very uh, cool guy, you don't get affected by fame well, or famous people. But apart from obviously people like Brecker, who are your absolute, you know, the heroes. But is yes, there yeah. a moment you can remember when you were actually a little nervous in the studio with? Well, here's the thing. I got I got a call to to work with McCartney. Yeah. And I got that call because McCartney wanted to do this project called Cold Cuts, meaning tracks that he had never finished. And so they were cold cuts. Oh, that's mm -hmm. cute. And um he needed somebody to do it and he had called George Martin and said, "George, I want to finish all these tracks. Some of them were Wings tracks that were never finished." Some of them were McCartney demos that were never finished. Some, you know, they were all from all through his career. And he had 16 tracks to work on. And George Martin said, no. He said, you know, I, I've got other stuff on my plate at the moment. You know, and I think it's possible that George Martin did recommend me because he, he, I had uh, done a TV show with him and, and we had spoken at one time. And I tried to interview him for my invisible artist book because I do a chapter on him, but he wouldn't do an interview. He said, I've talked too much about my, uh, I don't really like to do interviews anymore. But anyway, so McCartney for one reason or another asked me to do it. Also, I think Graham Perkins, the fixer, uh, my, my friend, uh, may have recommended me to him. And I think of course that's a good thing. So then I met McCartney. He, he sent me his latest album, which was pressed to play. And he invited me to his office. So I went and met him in the lobby, and he sat me down. He didn't take me up to an office. He sat me down in the lobby. And, and so I thought, okay, that's interesting. And he said, the first thing he said was, what did you think of my album? And I said, well, I, I thought it was very nice. It sounds like you were kind of experimenting, writing with different co-writers and uh, some of the experimentation works and some of it doesn't work so well. And uh, I, I said I wouldn't call it a typical McCartney record apart from the one track that you wrote on your own where it's a kind of a ballad. And he said, well, I'm glad to hear you say that. Because when I, when I said that to him, I just thought, wait, I've just dissed his record and I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> And, and, and there was a gap. And then he said, well, no, I'm glad, I'm glad you said that. Because it, actually, it's exactly what it was. And it was an experiment. I miss being able to write with two guitars with John. And I was trying to find out if I could find somebody else. And, and uh, some of the tracks work and some of them tracks don't. And, and it, you know, so that was good. And then he said, okay, well, you can do the record. He said, he said, there's no point in saying anything else. Why don't you come down to the studio and is it rye he's yep. got this Remote, yeah yeah 
And he said, come down and I'll play you all the tracks and we'll decide what to do. So, of course, he started playing the tracks for me. And I said, okay, well, that one, we could definitely, that could do with the string section. It's a nice thing. And maybe on this one, we want to redo the piano because it's not recorded very well. And uh, this one, the guitar's out of tune. We'll probably redo that. And then on, I said, on this one, uh, you'll want to redo your vocal. And suddenly he looked at me as if I had just killed his entire family. <laughs> and he said, what? He said, what's wrong with my vocal then? You know, he got all Liverpool on me. What's wrong with it? And, and I suddenly thought, oh, shit. You know, I, <laughs> now a line. I you've, you've crossed that little it. line. Yeah. yeah, well, I thought I had, but then he started laughing. He said, I got you there, I got you there. No, that's fine, I'll redo the vocal. And, you know, everybody warned me that McCartney was going to be a really difficult guy, that he was very, very controlling, uh, that he he was very, very um, hands-on and wanting, you know, telling you each note to write. None of that. I didn't get any of that. I, I, every, I did 16 tracks for him, and each one each just said, go for it, do whatever you think it needs. And and we did that. It was very easy experience, in every way. Yeah. Couldn't I mean he couldn't have been more charming, and the 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 first thing I did for him though was he said, well, it was late in the day in the studio, and the first thing that I did, he said, by the way, I want to do it's Linda's birthday, and I want to do a record for Linda. I don't want to do a birthday record, and there's a song called Linda that one of her father's clients, Jack Lawrence, wrote called Linda. And I knew the song. When I go to sleep, I don't hurt how cheap. I'm the stars about Linda. Anyway, I knew the song. And I said, okay, great. And and uh, he said, um, this was on a this was on a Thursday night, I think. And he said, um, I've got the studio booked for Monday to record this. How do you think we should do it? And I said, well, you know, it's a song from the 40s. Let's do it with a big band. <clears throat> I have a big band. He said, great. Okay. See you at the studio. Bye. I said, wait a minute. What, Paul, uh, can I know what key you want to sing it in? Oh, yeah. Okay. So he goes over to the piano and he starts playing it and it's an A flat. Uh, great. No problem. So then I, I, I said, you, you don't he said, do whatever you think is right. Go, go for it. I said, okay, well, I'll do a kind of a Sinatra Nelson Riddle thing. He said, great, do it. So then he, he gets up. He says, see you at the studio. I said, no, 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 wait a minute. Because <clears throat> he, he's making a 45 single. And I said, a 45 has two sides on it. I said, what are we going to do for the B side? And he said, oh, well, I thought we'd just put the same thing on both sides. And I said, when you were making Beatles singles, what would your fans have said if you had put the same thing on both sides? Oh, that would have killed us. So I said, okay, so what are we going to do for the B-side? He said, oh, I don't know. So I said, well, how about instead we do a different version of the same song? Let's do a Latin version of it. Oh, yeah, great, great. Uh, fruit on your head, karaoke, let's go for it. Yeah. And I said, okay, do you want to hear what, uh, you know, my idea for how to do it? He said, no, we'll do it in the studio. It'll be fine. And that was it. So now, now I just wanted, I'm in Rye. It's late. I got to get my train back to London and, you know, get back to Maida Vale. And then I've got to write two big band arrangements 
and have them ready to play Monday, parts copied. Because in those days, I had my parts copied by a human being, Derek Andrews. And man, so I started writing that night. For the next couple of days, I didn't get any sleep. Because this is the very first thing I'm writing for Paul McCartney. Yeah, okay, so if you ask, was I ever starstruck? Well, <clears throat> I wouldn't call it so much starstruck as there was some pressure on. <laughs> so that's what I did. And then, you know, I, I finished the first arrangement and I managed to, then I had to drive down to my copyist flat, give it to him. He started copying because I had to be ready for Monday morning. So, and then the second, I finished the last arrangement Sunday night. And the copyist copied all night. And Monday morning, he brought all the parts to the studio and we started. And Paul walked in about an hour late. The band was there. It was Banzilla. And uh, I had Pete Vitesse on keyboards, which was fantastic. I just a great band, Mitch Dalton on guitar. It was ridiculous. And... Paul came in and said, oh, that sounds great, man. He went in. Now, immediately when he walked in the studio, ice, you know, everything yeah. just <laughs> tense up. So he knew this. He was, he was not stupid. And he walked into the studio and he started joking around with all the guys. And, uh, you know, he'd pick up the trumpet and play a few notes. Oh, this, you know, this and, and uh uh, you know, he talked to the drummer, it was Ian Wilkinson on drums, and he talked to him about his drum heads, and he says, oh, yeah, I like these, but I prefer the number fives. You know, he did all that stuff. Yeah. And everybody just was completely relaxed. Yeah. relaxed. And uh, then we did a take, and it was fantastic. And then we had a short break, and then we did the other tune, and it was fantastic. And then <clears throat> when that was all over, uh, the musicians left. He said, okay, Rich. He said... Now I want you to sing both versions to me because I'm not sure how it goes. So I want to hear how you think it goes. So, I, you know, now I have to sing two songs for Paul McCartney. And, you know, I, I do have a beautiful voice, which has been described as a safe being dropped out of a fourth story window. It's, um, it, that's accurate. <clears throat> yeah, I think that's true. <laughs> yeah. So... So I sang both songs to him, and he, and now I got to tell you, there were some little tricky things in the thing, arrangement, as you might think, Imagine possibly you. in a Richard Niles arrangement. I mean, there's this one thing that's called uh, the, where there's one lyric that I said. Uh, oh, it's it. Uh, da, da da da. My heart skips a beat. Well, of course, when, <laughs> in one tune, when I when it says my heart skips a beat, I skipped a beat. So there's yeah. a bar of three. And then in the other tune, when it says my heart skips a beat, I added one. So yeah. it's a bar of five. <clears throat> he got it immediately. He heard me sing these things once. He walked in the studio, sang it perfectly, including the time change. And he says, oh, that was all right. What do you think? Can I do another one? Yeah, you're going to say to Paul McCartan, no, you can't do another one. He did another one. It was brilliant. It was perfect. He said, okay, let's do the other one. I said, do you want to hear it? for No, let's just go for it. Bang, he does the Latin version. And he improvises all this hip stuff at the end. I mean, if, I, you know, I'm not, allowed to, I'm not allowed to give you a copy of the record, but I'm going to give you a private copy yes. so you can listen to it. <clears throat> he was brilliant. So 
you know, that's that was before I did any of the arranging for him. Mm. So starstruck, I'll tell you the word is impressed. The guy's ridiculously talented. And, you know, while we were in the studio together, he could play every instrument really well. Yeah. Really well. He's a it, great drummer. It's It's also... There's quite a few stories like that about how he knows what effect he has when he walks into a room, and he, and and actually at at the time or you know back then, Linda especially was very good at it. But he has a really good way of diffusing a situation, and people think within five minutes, oh, it's not Paul McCartney, it's just a guy, a really nice guy who happens to be exactly. very talented. And he and and a lot of people that have met him, I know a lot of younger people that have met him. And they kind of base base him and how he behaves on what a famous person should behave like, and Absolutely. anyone and anybody that that behaves differently to that or is tries to be difficult or deverish, it's like, well, if he doesn't do it, why should anyone else ever do it? Exactly, and and I also have to say, since you mentioned Linda, and this whole thing was for her. Yeah. Afterwards, when it was done, he'd given her. So he had a pressing plant ready to press 12 vinyl singles. He had had a photograph done by Gerald Hurl, the famous uh, photographer, kind of an old-style photograph of, of Linda and, and another one of him and Linda on the back. He had already had these pressed up before he asked me to do it. I mean, not pressed up, but he had had the covers pressed before he asked me to do it. And afterwards, Linda was in the studio, and she she gave me a copy of this, which I still have, and she said, I just really want to thank you. It was so lovely what you did. It was so great, and Paul enjoyed doing it so much. And and he said, it, she said, it was so cute the way he, that he gave it to me. And I said, well, tell me. And he, she said, well, we have a living room, and we have a big record deck in the in the living room and he asked me to come downstairs and he had the, and the family came in the room and he handed me this box which was in uh silk pink i think it was pink silk tied with a like japanese box and inside the box were the 12 singles uh and the 12 copies of the record and he he said, take one out, and she took one out. He said, give it to me, and he took it over to the record deck, and he put it on, and then he mimed both versions for her and the family. <laughs> wow. And she said, it was the cutest thing we'd ever seen, and and I'm so grateful. And she was such a nice woman. I, you know, I can't say enough about it. She was warm. Yeah. She was charming and, and just great. Yeah, definitely. So I don't want to leave this without talking a little bit about some of the acts and the people that you were kind of responsible for you know not only arranging but also kind of being an integral part of um what was your first introduction to swing out sister did they approach you did you approach them what's the i got story? a call i got a call from the um i got a call from the producer who for some reason, I'm having another senior Paul, moment. Paul, Paul Duffy. Yeah, Paul. Yeah, Paul, Paul Duffy called me up. And he was working in a studio down on the Chiswick High Road, which mm. I've forgotten the name of. And he said, uh, 
And I had worked for Metropolis. him before. Would it be Metropolis? No, it wasn't Metropolis. It was the, the other direction. It was a little tiny oh, like okay. a demo right. studio the okay, other cool. way. Yeah, and yeah. you had to go up some stairs to a top oh, okay. room. Right. Okay. This tiny studio. Because they didn't give him the money for the big thing yet. No. So he called me and said, I've got this group, and I think it's right down your alley, and, and uh, I don't know what to do with them exactly, but I think you know it's kind of jazzy, and I think it might be your thing. So I said, okay. And so I went to the studio, went up the stairs, and I heard it, and uh, I immediately knew where Andy was coming from musically. And I said, okay, I notice all the substitute dominant chords. That's nice. And, you know, I, that's cool. And uh, <clears throat> Paul said, what do you want? And I said, well, give me a brass section right away because there was this big gap in the record when nothing happened. You know, here, this is a song that does not have a chorus. Don't stop to ask. That's not the chorus. That's that's a that's a what they call the ramp or the bridge. Mm. But it's not the chorus. Here's the chorus. Break out. That's it. Mm. That's all. And then there's this bass thing going on. And there's four bars. So I said, well, okay, I'm going to jump on that like a rat down a drain pipe. <laughs> And and uh, and so I wrote a line to go in that thing, and some of it copies the bass line, and then it goes off into a thing, and it it's a little hooky melody, which of course, as an arranger, you're always looking for hook hook melodies to another thing. And I thought, without a chorus, this song is missing something because it's got it's it's a great tune, fantastic tune, but it didn't have a hook, so that's why I threw it in there, and and. Uh, there are lots of good songs on that record, but the first two tracks that I did, they wouldn't let me use real strings because they didn't have money for it and they wouldn't pay for it. Mm. So I had to use fake strings. And what I did was there was a guy, uh, again, I'm having trouble with names, but it was a guy who was the keyboard. His name was Vic. He was mm -hmm. the keyboard player for Sad Cafe. And he had a Roland CS80 that, sickeningly heavy keyboard it takes at least three people to carry mm. and he he i knew he had a string noise that was kind of good on it it wasn't you know nothing satisfied me as a, as a fake string noise but that it was not too obnoxious it was just a little tiny bit obnoxious so i hired vic and i wrote out all the parts as if i were writing for a real string section and then he, he did violin one violin two violin violas cellos and that's how we did the string. So is that so? It's a CS80 on Breakout and Twilight World, Correct. and Correct. It's a CS80. No, wow! No, 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 no. Now by the second, oh, once... Twilight World, we got the real thing. Oh, Twilight World, we got the real thing. Say, baby. That was that would be too too much. Oh that hell one. yes! Oh yeah, yeah. Fooled by a smile. Excuse me. Yes. Those tracks. Yeah, there's some hip shit on that. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and so so yeah, but but for the first tracks that we did. I did. They wouldn't let me use real strings. Yeah. By the time the record was number one, they said, "Okay, we well, can use real strings." Yeah. And I'm surprised that with Paulo Duffy, who was at the time a pretty well-known producer, that they wouldn't have let him have whatever he wanted. But that's how record companies it's, are. They're... Yeah, it's the beginning of it. And is that around the? Sorry about that. That's my phone. It's that's right. okay. It's, it's just a, it's a duck. 
Of course it's a, it's duck. a duck. And that's, that's why a... I mentioned duck. Because, that's why I'm leaving you know, it in, because it's a duck. Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I suppose a duck's not out of this question. No, no, no it's, 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 it's staying in. Um, okay. Again, same, I guess, same label. I mean, Clive Griffin was obviously in Banzilla with you anyway. You discovered this incredible... No, 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 no. They, he, I, I, I discovered that? him way before, and that's, a, that's an amusing story, if you have time for it. Uh, I was producing, I had been asked by... Muff Winwood to produce a guy called Simon Andrew. And the reason you don't know his name is because he was utterly not a singer. Mm. So I've kind of ruined the story now by saying that, but I'll just tell you, I was asked to produce this guy. I was told, oh yeah, he's got all these great songs and he's, he's touring all the colleges and he's, all, the, all the schools and he's, he's got a following, he's got thousands of fans. So finally, I, I had this great band of the fantastic record, great people in it, and uh, it all sounded great. Then it came time to do his vocals, and I noticed that Simon refused to do his vocal. He didn't want to do a guide vocal. I said, well, can you just put it on? No, I won't do that. So then finally, I get to the time when I'm supposed to do his vocal, and he says, uh, he says okay, fine. And so he went in, and he started singing. I swear to you, you would have prayed on your knees for me to be singing. Okay. It was like, baby, baby, I wanna tell you. Really, it was bad, B-A-D, bad. So I said, wait a minute, hold on a second. The records that you just played me, all the demos, the singer is fantastic. And there, and it was this duck. No, sorry about this. <laughs> So now, so now, I'm wondering, and so he, so he finds, oh, okay, I have to own up. We had a session singer come in and do the vocals for Simon. A session singer? This guy's fantastic. So he, he said, well, you know, you're just going to have to do it with Simon. I said, no, I'm not. Forget it. I'm not doing it. You get that guy in right now. So they called up Clive, and it was Clive Griffin. And, and Clive... Walked into the studio, long hair, cut off, very short jeans, a deep tan, because he'd been away on holiday somewhere. He looked like a hippie. Mm. And, and I said, hey, man, you know, what's happening? He says, okay, yeah, I remember this. I did this a while ago. And I said, well, I, I need you to sing these two songs. All right, then. And he goes in, of course, nails it. And then I said, then after the session, I said, Clive, here's two things that you got to put in your head. Number one, you sound fantastic. Number two, we are going to do a record almost right now. He said, all right. All right, let's, let's try it. I said, what are you doing right now? He said, oh, I'm, I'm in a band with some rock guys, and they've got me singing this kind of heavy metal-ish type of stuff, and... He says, I'm not really into it, but I'm just... I said, no, that's not what you're supposed to be singing. That's not it. You've got this beautiful, soulful voice. We're going to write some tunes with a groove. Said, okay, fine. So we went back into my little studio in the back of my garden that you remember well. Mm -hmm. And we started writing. And it just, it was so easy to do. Um, he'd come in with ideas. I'd come in with ideas. Songs got written really quickly. And 
So, and we, we started recording them. And, you know, I, it, it just all came together. And then I took it to, because I knew Swing Out's sister, I took it to their management, which was Jamie. Mm. And I took it to Jamie, and uh, they, he and his partner, Matthew, heard what we'd done, and they said, whatever you do, do you have other appointments set up? I said, yeah, I've got four other appointments set up in the next week. They said, cancel them. And they said, just give us, please, one week, and, and we will get you a record deal. And I said, okay, then. Because they were really, you know, obviously digging it. And so three days later, I got a call from Jamie saying, phonogram wants to sign you. Okay. And they did. And a guy named Nick Angel. And uh, I said, you know, the album's done. Here it is. Um, this is what we want as the for a single and this is you know and they we, we decided on something but the thing is <clears throat> you know it's the old story phonogram did not promote it when it came out they did a little bit but they didn't do what they were supposed to do and i and i i noticed that their promotional budget for clive was microscopic and by that i mean something in the region of 5,000 pounds. Mm. To break a new artist, that is just about like putting a gun to their head. So anyway, that's what happened with that. But I, I will again say that working with Clive was always a total pleasure. He has a magic voice, and uh, we had more fun in the studio than anyone deserves to have. Um, and and st and on stage because we did a lot of gigs. We we supported Shaka Khan on a tour, and that was ridiculously fun. We had Michael Ruff playing keyboards. I mean, it was wow. ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. It's it's great. I mean, I think you've you've actually nailed it. I mean, he really is. I'm I'm I, I'm a huge lover of female voices. I find it that I can normally name the, my favorite male voices barely on one hand, and mm -hmm. it is you know he's in there with with Michael McDonald, obviously who you've worked with before, you know, mm -hmm. various, you know, various people like that. But um he's yeah, I mean it's incredible talent and uh yeah, and, uh, absolutely unbelievable. Um we've we've kind of run out of time a bit, so I, I well, I'm sure we have. I'm sure we have. This, I, 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 there's a million stories, but um I you know I, I didn't get a chance to ask you about a, some some incredible other things that you've done. But I I I do want to talk a little bit to end a little bit about the writing that you've been doing and, you know, the books that you you've been putting out and uh, in particular, your love of other people and that do your job uh, and contemporaries. And, and with that in mind, um, we lost one of the best this year. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on uh, on Jeremy Lubbock and who he was to you and what he meant to you. Well, Jeremy Lubbock, of course, was one of the greatest musicians uh, ever in any kind of style of music. But the reason I say that is not because of all the hits that he contributed to and his great songs, his, not like this and many other really beautiful songs that he wrote, but because he had that 
ability that the really truly great artists had to say something personal to him that was universal to everyone else. That's what we all strive to do. We all have a cry of love or a cry of pain or a cry of something that we want to impart to the world before we shuffle off this mortal coil. That's the second time I've mentioned mortality, by the way. And it's not just because I'm an old man. But Jeremy had that ability to do that. And and what when he wrote, yes, it's beautiful and it fulfills the function of arranging when he was arranging or composing when he was... But there's always something in it which is uniquely just bloody-minded. And when you started to talk to him, I mean, I I have, luckily, I have a long interview with him, which I'm going to release on Radio Richard. Great. Uh, and I'm also doing a documentary um, tribute to Jeremy, which has uh, tributes from all kinds of great people like Quincy and David Foster and all these wonderful people who worked with him. So we've we've been compiling tributes from all over the the world of people who worked with him. He had that ability to touch people in a way that was beyond music, you know, and that's and that's what he had. He was also very very bloody-minded and difficult. And you know, he he had his own attitude and if if you didn't like it, piss off you know and and he was he was not afraid to say what he thought a lot of this interview i can't publish i can't i can't release to the public because he's just ranking on people and he's telling true stories about what complete tossers some people are and you know you just can't unfortunately it's just would be bad to do that mm. but man you know that's the best thing i can say about him is that he was totally himself, and everything that he wrote was totally himself. Anyone who loves music in any way should have the Awakening album. If they don't, then they they just don't know about it or they don't love music. If they know about it and don't have the Awakening album, then that's it. And anytime they want to feel like there could possibly be a god, which is doubtful, but if there could possibly be one, listen to that music but so there, but there was a point when that i mean that album i didn't i mean there was a point where no one needed, was going to have that album it was never going to i mean i remember you i think you might have given me a copy of it but it was wasn't released and it was never going to yeah. be released well and that's um, the, the whole God story of that yeah he talked about it and uh, in the interview and and that's something i will uh, certainly released to the public. But, you know, re what do record companies know? The thing was, have you ever done this, Steve? You you sign an artist to a record deal and the A&R man changes. Hmm. What happens? The new A&R man does not want to be pushing projects by their predecessor, so they drop you. Hmm. And that's exactly what happened with him. You know the record was dropped, and so it took a, a long time to get it to get it out. And of course, it can't. You know, I always say about records that don't get any promotion, they weren't released; they escaped. Yes, no, I agree oh. with that, and 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 I agree totally with the 
with you saying that about awakening is just a it's one to be to be found and uh and looked out and uh yeah and i look forward to your new projects everything coming out you are a, a anyone that wants to find out more about you there's obviously all of the podcasts and there's the books and you're a we didn't get into it but you're a, a staunch uh, believer in rights for arrangers and you know that's yes, a whole do. other that's a whole other story but i mean i'd say yeah. read the book because there's a lot to do with that um well, funny you should mention the, funny you should mention the book oh there it is well yes the that? invisible artist and the way that i describe the invisible artist to people is I, and, and it's kind of the way you described it to me before you wrote it was uh, was if you if you ask anybody to sing you dancing in the street, the first thing they'll do is go da 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 da, da. and that was and that was the guy that got paid fifty quid, not the guy exactly. that wrote the song. Exactly, and, that was and that's the easiest way of me des- describing your book because pretty much it's not only about that, but it's. That sums it up perfectly. And it's <laughs> but that's I, how you we, that's how you told me what you were writing when you were writing it. And I was like, I yes. get that. Yeah. So it's and, complete... I, and I'm so glad that you contributed to it because people don't realize that producers, remixers, remixing is is just another form of arranging. That's what you're doing. You're arranging music, mm. and uh, uh, it's all part of the great thing of some people like to hear how things were done. And some people just like to hear the thing when it's done. Exactly, I'm one of the former. And we've had we've had some of the best fun in the studio um, ever. And I've learned so much from you. And you know, from something and the so, yeah, and it's but, but from something so sublime and and so brilliant as the big band reworkings to you know working on the the Polly Ray Hurley Burley show where, you know, I let you do a Benny Hill version of hit maybe every one more time, including yeah. sound effects by the best, probably the best trumpeter that's ever lived. Sadly, not with us anymore. Derek Watkins, who yeah. basically playing Benny Hill sound effects one minute and then hitting impossible notes mm-hmm. in another, and then doing the whole session that started at nine, it finished at six and then he went off and did a West End show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. is, you know, they're legends. So I mean, I've we've had fun. I've I've learned that so you've been a mentor. You've I've learned so much from you, and uh, you're a, a great friend. And uh, thanks for doing this with me. And um, good luck with everything. And of course, your son is going to be a musical prodigy and a genius. So I can't wait to hear m- more from Alex as well. <laughs> great. And I've loved every minute of this. And this is great. And we can we can do six more. Yeah, we'll do six more. All right. Take care. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.